welcome beautiful people to this week's episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and this is the show where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. Hello, regular contributor, Representative Emily Kornheiser. So glad you're with us today. Hi, Olga. It's so good to be here with you today. Well, you've just come off a busy last week and you're, you kind of have a reprieve before you dive in again to another busy week. Um, even though folks will be hearing this on Friday, we're actually pre-recording on Monday before Emily dives back into the legislature. Just give us a little update. Yeah, so we're, well, there's tree work being done on my road. So listeners might get a part of that happening. Um, Green Mountain Power is cleaning up the lines. And the week after town meeting break, which was last week, is policy crossover. Mm -hmm. And then this coming week is money bill crossover. And so what that means is it's sort of an artificial construct that the legislature created in order to have things move somewhat efficiently. Mm -hmm. The idea is that it's about halfway through the session, any bills, policy bills, that um, we would sort of have a reasonable expectation that the other body would pick up needs to exit that committee by the end of this last Friday. And then by the end of this coming Friday, those bills need to make it out of the money committees. So the Appropriations Committee and the Ways and Means Committee. I sit on the Ways and Means Committee. And so everything is just like very much in the thick of it and everything's running around and details are being worked out and um, lots of hustle and bustle and grouchiness and excitement and rumors and all the things. It's sort of the time of year when everything feels the most like a political television show and the least like sort of the usual way of Vermont legislating. Um, Do you do a lot of walking and talking down the hallways? Yes, there is. There's a lot of walking and talking down the hallways. Um, (laughs) No, I think I feel the most like Josh Lyman if I think about all the characters in West Wing that I resonate with. Um, (laughs) Though I'm not quite, quite that snappy. So, um, but yeah, no, it's like the most, things are sort of the most high, high octane during these two weeks. Um, And it's pretty intense to be around, especially because this is the second year of the biennium. Right. And so um, there's sort of the added pressure from that, as well as the added pressure of election year coming up. And we'll just remind people why that is significant, what Emily just said about the second half of the biennium. So Vermont's legislature runs in two-year cycles essentially. And at the end of the first year or halfway through the cycle, bills can still stay on the wall for one more year without having to go back through the process. But at the end of the two-year cycle or the biennium, then basically everything, it's like everything old. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Everything old goes (laughs) bye-bye and has to Mm -hmm. start all over again. Yeah. And it's funny. So if we think about that end of the biennium feeling where all of the bills that have not completely passed through and been signed into law need to start all over from scratch. What we actually wanted to talk about today was sort of this idea that everything old is new again, as we were doing some planning together Mm -hmm. for um, trying to get a little bit ahead of ourselves on what we wanted to talk about week by week. We were sort of running through major topics and I was thinking about the bills that have sort of the most um, oomph or excitement around them or the issues that seem to concern my constituents the most. And we were sort of running through them and we had sort of, we had done like one or even two episodes on each of those issues already, yeah. Yeah. partly because we're so awesome, 
But I think mostly (laughs) because things take a really long time to get done. And so often a topic will be debated multiple biennium, biennia, whatever. They'll yeah, be, let's, the, yeah, let's not think too hard on Often that issues will be debated for many years yep. before they make it across the finish line. And so, you know, excitingly, we the House um, voted to override the governor's veto of the Brattleboro Charter change. Mm-hmm. And the Senate still needs to do that. But this is the second biennium that we've worked on it. And so one of my colleagues in committee was joking. Um, he's actually the only Republican that voted yes on the override. So thank you to him, yes, Mr. Scott you. Beck. But he was joking. Everything's always about Brattleboro with those charter changes. And I was like, actually, Scott, this is the first charter change that I've ever worked on. It's just that we voted on it three times. And he was like, oh, yes, because we <laughs> voted on it the one biennium. And then the pandemic hit. And so it never made it across to the Senate. And then we did it again this year. And then the Senate voted on it. And then it came back again because of the veto. Mm-hmm. And so that's just like, a fairly simple charter change that Brattleboro voters voted on mm-hmm. that doesn't cost the state any money, but for issues like the wicked problem of housing or um, universal meals in schools mm-hmm. or how to create a progressive tax structure or Update the education funding formulas mm-hmm or liquor laws. I mean, everything is just, there's, you know, it takes a long time to sort of move everyone through an issue um, and to get all of the details in line. Because you really want to bring, sometimes when you bring up something in one year, that just sort of is what you need to do in order to get all the stakeholders activated enough that they'll mm-hmm. show up for a conversation. Yeah. And so you spend one biennium making people concerned enough that then over the next summer or the next biennium, they, that will then have a conversation. And then by sort of the third round, you might be able to come up with a solution that works for people. And so... Public safety is another one. Mm-hmm. Right now we're grappling with issues around how to do dispatch in Vermont. And the governor sort of has a proposal on the table that solves things for the state police, but doesn't really solve things for like all the communities that are grappling mm-hmm. with this problem. Mm-hmm. And so as we try to sort of look at that and sit and figure that out, it turns out that there have been like studies on this since the seventies, mm-hmm. but we still don't really have a solution. Mm-hmm. And so that's just like one of the many everything old is new again. Yeah. Well, it's when we were talking about this feeling we were both having while we were doing our, our planning for some upcoming episodes. It's something I sit with a lot when it comes to democracy in general is there's always this strange tension, I think. And, and I think it's why some people get frustrated with the political process or the policy making process is that we want democracy to be slow so we can really vet ideas in in a perfect world and in a perfect world have as many people at the table as possible and to hear from as many people as possible and to you know really build good policy and yet human beings being what we are it's hard to sustain that energy when you have so many other things on your plate um, and sometimes we just have short memories as human beings. And so we'll care about something at one point and then it just slips to the back burner with all the other things we need to do. And um, I just find that as a, as an interesting tension, that sense of urgency with that sense of thoroughness. Yeah. 
There are two places that this comes up the most in my work, but I think it's everywhere, um, is with all of the climate action work we've been doing. Mm -hmm. We, you know, this is like the greatest existential threat of our time. Even if we act now, it's too late. I don't mean to sound blithe when I say it. It's just like, it's hard. I don't know if I even have the emotional energy at this particular moment on a Monday to like sound as urgent as I need to sound when I talk right. about climate change. Right. And yet we know that the best solutions to these problems come when we deeply engage the communities that are most impacted by it. Mm -hmm. And that we bring multiple stakeholders to the table and that we have the administration's buy-in because they're the ones who actually have to do the work. And all of these things. But as was the tagline at one of my previous jobs, um, collaboration moves at the speed of trust and trust takes patience to build. Mm -hmm. And as you always say, Olga, this might be your journalism tagline, you can never control when someone enters the conversation. Is that the line? Mm -hmm. And what, what they bring with them when they enter it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so every, in addition to the fact that every biennium, we have brand new people at the table to have these conversations in the political sphere. We also really have an obligation to continue, continue to bring in communities and stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And it's a real balance between how much you let participation hold up the process. It's a good point. And how much it really aids the final decision or the final policy. But it is, it's a really hard balancing point. One of those sort of everything old is new again topics that we're working on a lot this year is Act 250 reform. Mm -hmm. And one of the interesting things about Act 250 reform, which we have talked about on the show before, yep. um, and I think we're going to talk about again in a couple weeks, is that the essential building blocks of Act 250 was about stakeholder participation mm -hmm. and that you bring a community around a table to say whether or not a project should be viable in that community, whether it meets the community's needs. It was sort of creating a path and statute for that level of community involvement to sort of look at the environmental impacts writ large. But we also know that a well-lawyered up community stakeholder group can really destroy a very well-meaning and well-designed development project. Mm -hmm. And so that's like in a very, very narrow spot of policy, a place that we really see those two dynamics playing themselves out. And actually the Act 250 reform we're looking at is how do we make this even more accessible and community-based and less about litigation and, mm -hmm. and more about participation. Mm -hmm. And I know the conversations are ongoing at this point, but are there, has there been anything highlighted that, that can kind of work through that balance or hold that balance? Yeah, it's about, um, and there's a few places in legislation that we're doing this, so I'll talk about it in a second, but mm -hmm. with Act 250, what the proposal right now is that when we make it a court process and it sits in the environmental court instead of with sort of um, a commission or the regional commissions, it means that people need to hire attorneys in order to participate. Right. And that drives the cost of participation up really high. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And discovery actually, which is the, I mean, the amount I know about the court process, we could like fit, you know, underneath my thumbnail, but <laughs> discovery is a place that sort of often one side of the issue is gets buried 
mm-hmm. under legislative action and dollars. And so, I'm sorry, judicial action and dollars, attorney action dollars. And so that's a spot that we're looking at sort of narrowing the scope a little bit so that people don't get buried and don't have to spend you know, thousands and thousands of dollars in lawyers in order to um, continue this process. Mm-hmm. But there's lots of other places like that where, and in order to do that, it's going to cost the state more because mm-hmm. we're going to need more members to be sort of sitting on this if it's outside of the justice system. Right. And it's sort of, you know, we're also looking at a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, mm-hmm. which is, you know, of course, definitely not a new idea here in Vermont. Mm-hmm. but what will it take to bring the right stakeholders around the table? Because essentially what we're doing is we're designing a legislative process for people to design a truth and reconciliation process. Mm-hmm. So it's a process for a process for a process. And in doing that, things are going to take so long right? and likely cost us, you know, some degree of money because we want to make sure that people are paid for their time in order to participate in something like that so that they can, Mm -hmm. but also will be sort of as inclusive as possible um, and have the right voices at the table. So that's another place that we see sort of that back and forth. And it's one of the reasons it's taken so long to move through the legislative process is we know that we're not the right people to be making those decisions. And so we needed to really take our time to make sure the right stakeholders were figuring Mm-hmm. That's about what you just said, Emily, brings up two points for me. The first is, it reminds me of conversations we've had with previous guests about just our, um, like our town meeting process, or our policy creating process in the legislature, that what a lot of these complex issues need are long conversations Mm-hmm. And yet, when it comes to voting on bills or it comes to voting on a town budget, that's not a deliberate, that's a decision process. It's not a deliberative process. And we don't always have that deliberative process kind of built in to um, our democracy at the level it needs to be. But the other thing, just echoing back to what you said about change moves at the speed of trust. Yes. Collaboration. Collaboration. Thank you. The the irony of this tension between having a thorough process and and getting things urgent needs met is that if things aren't moving at the speed that many people wish it should move at, then that can actually erode trust, even if the reason something's moving slow is in hopes of doing a better job or having a better result. And uh, yeah, that's a tricky one. That's one I think about a lot. So, I, you know, I don't want to get, well, whatever, I'm a rep from Brattleboro. I can get as woo-woo as I want to. But <laughs> Go for the, it. <laughs> in becoming, I think that's what's expected of me, right? So I can go in some feng shui and, and we'll, we'll right. talk chi in a minute too if you need. You know, one thing I've been talking to new members about, maybe we've talked about this on the show before, I'm actually not sure, is the idea that on some level when you sign up to be a legislature, you sign up to be like everyone's archetype of a politician. And so there is a tremendous number of people who deeply trusted me and collaborated with me the day before I was elected. And then once I was elected, we're like, oh, you're a politician now. You must be full of. And it was very confusing to me at first. I've experienced that as a journalist. Yeah. Yes. Yes. We have talked about this. And I don't remember if it was on the air or not, though. So listeners, (laughs) welcome to our weird archetypal universe. And so. But what that means is when I say things like we're waiting on this climate justice legislation until we can make sure 
the other folks living in the floodplains have like fully vetted our ideas or fully been able to come to the table. I think a lot of people see that as just excuses for not getting stuff done. Right. And part of that is because, you know, all of my predecessors have, you know, not personally, but sort of like the political predecessors to this moment have, you know, punted in order to, because they can't get stuff done because they don't want to get stuff done. But it's also like, we don't have any staff and we only meet for five months a year. And like the entire citizen legislature is designed to really keep us from doing as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's an interesting thing, how long it takes to get something done and what are we doing along the way to make sure that we're using that time as well as possible to bring stakeholders in. I um, went over to Tri Park this morning to meet the new chair of the board. Oh, yeah, which was lovely. And it's exciting because, um, and for listeners who are not in Brattleboro or maybe even are in Brattleboro, so Tri Park is the largest cooperative mobile home park in the state. Mm-hmm. And the majority of it sits in West Brattleboro. It's actually three separate parks, but one of them is huge and the other are fairly tiny with like 15 yeah. homes in them. Um, and so Mountain Home, which is quite large, is about a quarter of my district. Um, so really wow, a lot I of people I didn't realize it was there. that much. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of people live there. And because m- most affordable housing in the 50s, 60s, and 70s was built in floodplains, which is something we have talked about before on this show, it has a lot of housing that's deep in the floodplain. Yeah. And so they need, um, because it's a cooperative, each individual lot's rent pays towards the maintenance of the greater whole. Mm-hmm. And so they have a bunch of folks who are living really like basically underwater and need to move to higher ground, which will cost money. Mm-hmm. But if they just remove those lots from the park, then there's less money for the park as a whole and all the other maintenance costs of the park. Right. And so, you know, we were talking about all this and really excited because they just got a pretty large congressional earmark that was recommended by both Bernie Sanders and Peter Welch. Thank you to both of them for their great work on this. I believe it was the only project, earmark project statewide that was recommended by two of our congressional representatives. Oh, really? That's that's what it looked like in the article I saw, in the list I saw, but might have missed something. But the process to make sure that the folks who are living in that floodplain who would be impacted by the climate legislation we're working on and the particular solutions that I'm looking at in order to make sure that they have the resources they need to get this done. That's a lot of community participation that's needed. And it's a lot of having conversations with people who might not have any interest in having those conversations. Well, yeah, because so, it's yeah. messing with their housing on so many yeah, levels. It's messing with their housing. And like, who's, you know, we can't trust whoever put the park there in the first place. And so like, why would we trust anyone after that? And so that's a really interesting part of sort of what it means for this all to take as long as it does sometimes. Mm-hmm. Well, I think Tri Park's a really great example in that the conversation around moving vulnerable homes out of the floodplain. And it's not just the floodplain for for folks who are, are kind of flood wonks or, or map wonks. They may know that there's the floodplain in the floodway. And the floodway is where in a, in a flood, the current 
is most likely to be. And then the flood plain is kind of just where water is likely to, to expand to. And so the, the type of damage that can be done during a flood is slightly different in both these places. And there's a number of homes in the floodway, not just the floodplain. And the conversation in Tri-Park to move a number of vulnerable homes out of danger, basically, has been going on since 2007, I believe. More than 10 years at this point. And it's just there's a lot of moving parts. And you have to make sure that when folks are relocated, they're relocated to a home they can afford in a place they want to be. There's policy changes that have needed to happen around stick homes versus mobile homes. I mean, it's really a very deep weaving of a lot of different aspects of policy and people's lives and money and yeah. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about one of the conversations that might go slower, fast in the legislature, the, you know, every six months or so we talk about housing again on this show. Mm -hmm. And at this point, a lot of what's left for the legislature to do is to just pour more money at the problem every single year. Right. And that like, that's not so interesting to our listeners. Right. But where actually we pour the money is interesting to our listeners. And that's, you know, that's the stuff of public participation that we really need to unpack Mm -hmm. because having people into, and that's, for me, that's sort of like the core of representation because there's the conversations like that that you have or that we have with people actually coming into committee to have them with the housing committee um, and to give their perspective on that. And sure, Vermonters can come do that and that's great. Um, And representatives of the different stakeholder groups can come do that and that's great. But when we talk about real participation and real representation, it's actually having each one of the legislators have the time back in their home communities to be having those conversations so that when we show up back in the building, we're well-informed enough to be really um, effectively advocating. Mm -hmm. And so I'm over at Tri-Park, I'm meeting the new park manager, I'm meeting the new board chair, say something about something. He's like, oh, you don't have an office? And I was like, no, I don't have an, nope, no office. And then a few minutes later, and I was like, and I don't have staff. And he's like, you don't have staff? And it was just like this very interesting part of this disconnect between the public's perception of who we are and how we do our work and the reality on the ground of um, sort of the duct tape bailing twine situation that we're all in. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Emily. Um, On that note, we should head to um, break so -hmm. we can hear from some of our underwriters, but I want to yeah, we'll we'll continue this conversation more. And I should say, just in the interest of full disclosure, I have a day job. And that day job is actually working with TriPark on some of these issues too. So just in the interest of full disclosure, we're both involved in TriPark. <laughs> so we'll be right back here on the Montpelier Happy Hour on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. Welcome back 
back to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. As always, you can also find us wherever you find your podcasts, as well as on BCTV and on stations across Vermont and even a little bit in Massachusetts. So thank you to all our public access slash peg listeners as well. Emily, what do we need to remind listeners of? Well, Olga, it turns out that the views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests and not the stations that are broadcasting those views and opinions, nor the employers of the people expressing the views and opinions, nor the family members, just the host and the guests as themselves doing the talking. Mm-hmm. Yes. As, as my, my new employer is discovering, I'm pretty good at voicing my own opinion. Yes. <laughs> yes. Never um, mind. Well, it's lovely to hear you give that disclaimer again, Emily, because uh, last week, unfortunately, you couldn't join oh. us because you were on the floor. So I had to give the disclaimer and I did an okay job, but you know, nobody sparkles with like you with the disclaimer. <laughs> Thanks, Olga. I really get a kick out of it every week. I'm not sure why, but I do. I get a kick out of it. It's those little things, Um, right? (laughs) That's all I have in this life, Olga. Yeah. So there's a bunch of stuff coming to the floor this week. As I said, it's crossover. So everything's sort of um, fast and furious Mm -hmm. that I think really fit into this conversation about everything old being new again. Yeah. One of them is the clean heat standard is coming to the floor. Um, and I think we'll oh. talk about that more in a future yep. week. But we've talked about it a little bit with Matt Coda previously. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's one of the recommendations of the Climate, climate Council's report. Yeah. And so, you know, many years ago, when we passed the Global Warming Solutions Act, and then did the veto override, we talked about likely what might be the work of the Global Warming Solutions Act. And this was one of the things we talked about is sort of the thermal aspect of how we, you know, how we heat our homes is a really key part of the work that we need to do around climate. Mm-hmm. And then the Climate Council did its work and we talked about the things that they were doing. And we talked about how we heat our homes. And then here we are. And the report came out and we turned into some legislation and we're going to um, ideally pass this clean heat standard this week. Mm-hmm. And that's not enough because the Senate is sort of concurrently working on weatherization legislation. Right. And we'll it's definitely be talking about that in, yes. at the end of this month. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And so those two things come together and says like, what are we doing about the thermal footprint of how we warm our homes? And so that's a fun thing that's happening this week. I'm just going to interrupt your flow quickly, Emily. One thing I found really interesting about the clean heat standard is that I think it's a great microcosm of the bigger conversation around climate change. And one reason this, I think our conversation has been going slowly with climate change is how do we transition without leaving people behind? You know, it's one thing to say, well, everybody has to use solar to heat their homes. Well, not everyone can afford to put in solar. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how do we make that, that transition? Um, yeah. equitable for people. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that um, the legislature has really been, and the committee talked about a lot, is 
the workforce that mm. was heating our homes and what happens to all of those businesses and all the people who work for those businesses. Mm-hmm. And this is really, um, the committee really thinks of this as a runway for all of those fuel suppliers to find, to like really slowly shift their business model mm-hmm. in order to be meeting the needs of Vermonters fuel consumption, heating consumption into the future. And so one sort of example that I think of that in my own life is the company that delivers our oil is also does plumbing. Mm-hmm. And so last time we needed a plumber, that's who I called. Um, and they're still delivering oil and I hope to move off of the oil soon and all of those things. And this might, this will actually help my process on that. I don't know. But as sort of, we have, um, as people's education in the trades and as we really see a generational shift in who is trained in the trades um, and who is doing those jobs, it's a real opportunity for someone to learn about ducks generally, D-U-C-T-S. It's always a really hard word for me to enunciate. Um, And so someone who learns about plumbing also knows a lot about heating pathways. And that also, you know, is about heat pumps just as much as it is about um, sort of the fans that might drive a furnace. And so all of that becomes part of the education that the person has. And then a firm, um, whether that is a Coda and Coda or a Dead River or whoever else, has a staff of folks who can go into someone's homes and just like help them with all the pipes, regardless of what is traveling through those pipes. And so that sort of technology agnostic or fuel agnostic on the part of the provider is what makes it possible for Vermonters to really be sort of stepping into the future mm-hmm. with clean heat. Thank you. Yeah. So what else is coming back to the floor? So this one's, it's actually in statute that everything is old, it's new again, every 10 years we do a redistricting. Yep. And so um, what's really fun with the redistricting beyond just sort of watching some of my colleagues put together this really interesting puzzle of the state with the different pieces all need to be the same size. Um, It's like Tetris, but with more math and more important. But people are telling stories about what redistricting was like 10 years ago Mm. or what redistricting was like 20 years ago. Or um, my colleague, Jana, who is the chair of Ways and Means now was legislative counsel long, long ago. And so she drafted some of the redistricting legislation many years ago. And so oh, wow. that's like, that's so fun to sort of hear those um, myths that really shape our process and have people put words to them mm-hmm. through storytelling. And so redistricting for Wyndham County, I can do sort of like a quick little summary for people. Is that helpful? Sure. That'd be great. Okay. Um, so Brattleboro stays Brattleboro with three districts. The district lines are going to shift very slightly. Um, and so what that looks like is um, the strip of Route 5 between Exit 1 and Guilford is likely going to join District 2. Okay. Right now it's in District 1. And then a little bit, I think something's happening with Orchard Street a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So there's just like a li- really little bit of shifting. Hillary or Tom Clark actually designed the new map that's being voted out as um, a way of sort of equalizing the population between the districts in a way that minimized the number of town meeting representatives that would have to shift from one district to another. 
Oh, wow. That yeah, so we had like sort a of that extra of layer. Yes, yes. So we had that extra layer on our redistricting that other communities didn't have. But we also, Brattleboro's population as a whole has not changed at all in the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. We've just sort of shifted within the town. So that's happening. Um, it's recommended that Putney and Dummerston become a one seat district. And then Westminster and Rockingham are a two seat district. Mm-hmm. And so that Saxons River, Bellows Falls, and Westminster would be one district mm-hmm. with two seats in it. Right now, just for people who don't have this memorized, it's no Westminster, Westminster's part of Putney Dummerston, and right. Rockingham has Wyndham and Athens as part of it. Mm-hmm. So instead, it's going to be Rockingham plus Westminster, and then there's going to be another district, which is Wyndham, Grafton, Athens, Chester. Oh, Chester up dipping into Windsor County. Yes, which is one seat. Gotcha. Okay. And then Emily, the district that Emily Long sits in, which is the Marlboro Newfane um, Townsend District, is shifting very slightly, but it's essentially still going to be those same towns. Mm-hmm. Um, and the district that right now John Gannon sits in is going to be essentially the same. Um, that's Halifax and Wilmington and Whitingham. Mm-hmm. And then Guilford Vernon is going to stay exactly the same. And then the district that Laura Sibelia sets in, sits in now, which is Searsburg, Reedsboro, Dover, that is shifting, Wardsboro, that's shifting to bring Stratton in. And Searsburg is moving out. Okay. Searsburg, the one that's most to the west? Yes. Moving out into the Bennington one of the Bennington House districts. I think that's right. And then, yeah. Now, Whitingham is currently divided in, divided between two different reps. It's right now, Laura just has like a few of the houses in there. It's not that many. And I'm, I don't, I think that might be just John Gannon from here on out, but I'm actually not sure. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more like the whole towns that I can track. I'm not, right. I can't track. I haven't been tracking the um, individual lines within there unless they're like where I live. <laughs> so um, I think that covers Wyndham County. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the House Committee on Government Operations voted that out. And that's a really big deal. Mm-hmm. That's a big mm-hmm. step. Yep. That's a big step. Um, and so that's something that happens every 10 years. And like, we just sort of pick it up again. What's different about it this year is we had all this, we had a very late census and we had all of this cool new computer technology. So pluses and minuses there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We had, it was John was on the show. No, who? So John Gannon came on to talk about the census with us. And I think talk about redistricting really early on. And then Mike McCarthy just Mike, came on. Thank you. To go to talk about redistricting. And then other things that are coming through is some a little bit of rewrite of the statute that governs Act 46 mergers. Mm-hmm. Not really Act 46 mergers, but just the statute that governs how districts form or dissolve or all of that, that's okay. being rewritten. So that's another like topic that we've been talking about since we first started the show, mm-hmm. school governance and participation and what that means, right? Yep. Big issue in Brattleboro right now for people who gets to make a decision, the superintendent of the school board. Mm -hmm. Um, I know there's, yeah, a lot going on with that. 
Can I interrupt you quickly? You may not mm -hmm. know the answer to this, and that's fine. Yeah. But someone asked me the other day, and I didn't have the answer. So if the youth vote charter change makes it all the way through to the end mm -hmm. and goes into effect. Only one more stop. It talks about local elections. Will 16 and 17 year olds be able to vote in school elections as well? But because that's a district that goes outside Brattleboro, I wasn't sure. They will not. When okay. it originally passed the voters of Brattleboro, it did include school okay. votes really and school know. boards. Yeah. But in between when Brattleboro made that vote and today, the Brattleboro School Board is now um, elected by a much larger mm -hmm. group of folks than just Brattleboro residents. And so we removed that section when we did the charter change okay. legislation. And so it's just for town elections and representative town meeting elections. Thank you. And so similarly, we did non-citizen voting, um, non-citizens having a right to vote, residents, any kind of resident having a right to vote mm -hmm. in Montpelier and Winooski. Right. And in those contexts, Montpelier, which is part of a much larger school district, was did not include their school, mm -hmm. but Winooski, who has a school district that is just their town borders, yeah, that um, charter change did include their school board and school okay. district. Thank you. Yeah, totally. Early on in this 2022, we also talked about a firearms legislation mm -hmm. on around background yeah. checks, and I think that just came back to the. Yeah, that did come back around again. So um, S30, I really hope that's what number it is. It might not be because it's something that we passed last year. Mm -hmm. um, that's something that's been around and gone around in circles, I think three times too. And we've talked about before. And so what that includes is that background checks need to, um, the way background checks work now, and this is sort of referred to as the Charleston loophole. Mm -hmm is that they can, you request a background check as a gun dealer. And if the background check doesn't come back, either positive or negative, it's basically considered clear and you can sell a gun to that person after. And so what the new legislation did was said, you have to wait, you have to wait 30 days to hear either yes or no. And if you don't hear one of those two things, then you're free to sell the gun at that point. The vast majority, this is a very important piece of the legislation to me, the vast majority of background checks that take a long time to come back and then come back um, saying that this person probably shouldn't own a gun according to statute um, are for folks who have been engaged in some sort of domestic violence incident. Um, it's just sort of like the particular way those are set up in police department files and stuff like that, that um, those background checks tend to take longer. Mm -hmm. And so that was one piece of the legislation. Another piece of the legislation clarified when courts and judges can remove firearms from a household related to relief from abuse orders. So another big piece of sort of um, domestic violence protection, gun violence protection in that bill. And then the third bans guns in hospitals. And I think the day after the governor vetoed this sort of three-part bill, there was a shootout in a parking lot of a hospital somewhere up north. 
Yeah. And I don't remember those two being connected in the news, but I connected them immediately when I heard it personally. So those are the three things vetoed. The Senate just overrode the veto a few days ago, I think on Thursday, maybe it was Friday. And then the House likely does not have the votes to override the veto for that. Mm-hmm. In order for us to override a veto, we need all of the Democrats, all of the progressives, and a couple independents. Mm-hmm. And we need everyone to be in the building and in their seats to vote. Mm-hmm. And so in addition to the fact that you need an issue that you can have that broader coalition on, which is hard enough, mm-hmm. that being a Democrat is a very, very big tent um, and something that you can get an independent on, it's often hard to get a progressive on. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, with COVID and the amount that's going on in people's lives right now, it's very, very rare for, for us to have full attendance at something. Okay. Um, the Senate's supermajority is a little bigger than ours. Right. And so it's a little easier for them. So not easy, easy, just a little bit easier. Yeah. And so. Yeah, the um, numbers are a little different. Sometimes work out a little easier. Yeah. Yes, yes. And so since we likely don't have um, a veto override for that, while they overrode that veto, they also launched a new round of legislation that's going to look almost exactly like this bill, but is a little closer to what the governor was looking for um, in that it extends the waiting period, but does not extend it, um, the application period, but does not extend it as far as 30 days. Okay. So that's going to have a whole new bill number, but will be essentially the exact same thing and rolling around again. Interesting. So yes, everything old is new again. <laughs> So we're getting close to the end of time <laughs> for this for this episode. Let's clarify that before. Oh, Olga, predicting the apocalypse. I tell you, the power, the power. You know, our conversation about everything old is new again. I was thinking through some of the the legislation you talked about, and many of which I wrote about when I was still at the Commons, and. <laughs> I remember it was when Bradower was still voting just on a local issue, uh, the new firehouse. Mm-hmm. And I remember turning it, this conversation had gone on for, for years at this point. And I turned to Peter Elwell at one of the big special meetings. And I said, you guys may going to make a decision soon. Cause I'm running out of leads. <laughs> like I really, <laughs> I really don't Nothing know how else, else to write about this. They met and nothing happened. Like, I, I don't know how else to write that at this point. And he kind of gave me a, a diplomatic look, but I could I could see the gears in his head going like. That's the least of my problems, old guy. It's the least <laughs> of my problems. Just don't talk to me. Um, I wonder for you, you know, I've struggled as a journalist. Like, how do I bring this to the readers? This issue so that they can see it in a new way. Or that they can learn something maybe they didn't know before. And Mm -hmm. so I have definitely struggled with that. As a lawmaker, how do you, when you're working with your constituents, kind of meet that tension when something, it still needs its time on the, in the process, Mm -hmm. but people are starting to just be like, they're kind of losing it with it. Well, I guess I wonder, do we need to think about it in a new way or learn something new about it each time or... Is this an opportunity for us to, or really what I do, which is take this instead of getting impatient myself, um, I see this as an opportunity to sort of root myself in a long view of history Mm -hmm. 
and to help my constituents do that, to sort of see the process up until this point. I try to like reflect again on why I'm so grateful for during the Trump administration, democracy moving so darn slow. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's an opportunity to do that, to sort of situate ourselves in our patience Mm -hmm. and have some faith that sometimes the slow moving actually produces a better result. I also really think it's important for us to call BS on that when BS needs to be called on that. Because sometimes it's just that we're not acting with any courage and we need help finding courage. Mm-hmm. I will say though, that I rarely find courage when people yell at me. Yeah. Like just my synapses don't fire towards courage when I'm under assault. And I think that's true for a lot of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet I think we all sort of somehow default to getting you know, frustrated and angry when we want someone else to be courageous and they're not. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a lot of ways to help people have the heart that they need to find courage in the difficult conversations. And so that's something that I like to do with constituents and something I like to do with my colleagues. Mm-hmm. Well, Emily, as always, it's that time of the, the show. What shall we toast to today? Oh, you know what I want to toast to? So I was thinking about this book by Rebecca Solnit when I was talking about the long view of history and the courage and all that stuff. Um, I believe it's called Hope in the Dark. And that's that's what I would like to toast to, Hope in the Dark. Hope in the Dark. Thank you. Cheers. Well, beautiful people, that is all the time we have for today's episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can also find us on our Facebook page, the Montpelier Happy Hour, as well as where you find your podcasts and Emily's YouTube channel. Emily, where can people find you if they want more information? Folks can go to emilycornheiser.org where you will find links to all my social media channels, my email address, my physical address, my phone number, any community events that are coming up soon, and um, my weekly newsletter. So head on over there. And folks, if you are sitting here and feeling inspired by the Everything Old is New Again, and there's a topic that you're curious about or want to learn more about, drop us a line. You can send me an email at themontpelierhappyhour at gmail.com. You can reach out through our Facebook page as well as um, Emily's page as well. We'd love to hear from you. We always love hearing from listeners. So have a great week, everybody, and take care. Bye.